Listen to the podcast sometimes. I hear it's popular. <laughs> I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. The United States shares a very important relationship, which is an alliance with the Republic of North Korea. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and usually Rob Long, but he's in the wind. I'm James Lilacs and I'm full of the wind. And we're going to be talking to Corey Shockey today about Ukraine. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number 612. Why, that's my area code. Join us at ricochet.com, if you will. You, too, can be part of the most stimulating conversations in community on the web. What do you get? What does it look like? Well, yeah, there's a lot of fascinating conversations going on on the main page, but on the member page... Where, yeah, you got to cough up a shekel or two to get to. That's where the real conversation and community forms. Ricochet.com. Once you go there and take a look, you'll wonder, oh, where's this been all my life waiting for you at Ricochet.com. I'm James Lilix here in Minneapolis, 612 area code. Represent. Peter Robinson is in California. Rob Long uh, was supposed to be here. We don't know. He may pop in. It'd be a surprise. But, uh, you know, we can certainly soldier on without him. Peter, how are you? Oh, I'm extremely well, James. How are you? Uh, Jack Dandy. Thank you. It's a beautiful fall day here. The leaves are changing. Sun is brilliant and blue and all the rest of it. But still, you know, I wonder, okay, who blew up the pipeline? So, <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things where everybody pours their priors into it, right? right. Um, and so we have, what do we have? Hold on. Well, you better just take two sentences to explain the bubbles in the Baltic. The bubbles, in the, the bubbles in the Baltic sounds actually like, you know, the name of a Back to the Future school dance. I like that. <laughs> um, yeah, Nord Stream, kaboom. And <laughs> we're trying to figure, and, and two, explo two explosions, 17 hours apart, which made some people think, oddly enough, I was reading a great thread about this today from somebody who was in the, in the pipeline business, who was saying, no, 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 it wasn't us. It wasn't them. It wasn't Germany. It certainly wasn't Ukrainians. It was bad, bad maintenance. It was the fact that you had pressurized pipes full of hydrocarbons under tremendous amounts of water. They were trying to start it up in case they had to, and kaboom. He said the fact oh. that there were 17 hours apart from this, no military planning, he said, this is just a speculation, although he passed it off as certainty, which we love about the internet, nobody would blow up one and then give everybody 17 hours to get on the site and take a look and then blow up the other. No, you, right. you, you want to do it fast. So we were arguing about this in Ricochet last night, and I thought to myself, who's unlikely but possible? I thought, you know, anybody looked at the Israelis? Because when you think about it, they've got that big Leviathan oil field they're sitting on. They want to get pipelines to Europe. They want to sell the product. What's a great way to make the Leviathan strike to get German, to get Turkey and Cyprus and everybody else on board to building pipelines than to, than to knock out Nords from one or two. And if it means that Germany has to have a cold, cold winter, well, <laughs> well, Fritz revenge is a dish best served cold, as they say. So that's, possible what do you think peter i hadn't heard the russian incompetence theory before but i'm willing to put down a lot to russian bad maintenance and incompetence so i think my judgment would be occam's razor points in that direction however you you are groping toward you are working toward the premise of the next james bond movie i think <laughs> um you know, you'd like to think so. I would love to have a James Bond movie in which he is a stalwart, uncomplicated defender of Western civilization uh, who does 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 not regret his old school ways and who's more than capable of uh, dispatching our enemies for the sake of the West. Uh, but alas, I fear that that whole franchise is uh, 
Well, from what I understand, it's all going up on streaming soon, which I think is interesting. All oh, is that James- true? All yes, the movies? All of them. Which means it will be possible to sit down and have a lesson in the drift of Western civilization by starting with the first and going to the last. To watch how the cinema, how, how the sophistication of the movie increases, uh, how, how it goes through its 70s trough. I know, James, everybody loves Roger Moore, is charming, and the rest of it. How it goes through its 70s trough, how it staggers and struggles in the 80s and finds great, brilliant moments. You, you can learn a lot about who we are by seeing those and seeing what our enemies will. I, I still just have to cringe at how much of the public perception of Afghanistan was warped at the by the James Bond movie where he's with the Mujahideen. Remember that? It was the Timothy Dalton one. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, one of the Mujahideens comes up to him and clasps James Bond's hand. James! Because they went to Oxford together or something. And he's as westernized as they can possibly be. And they ride off in the sunset like cowboys in Silverado. And we're just supposed to think that these are the guys who aren't going to come back to bite us and took us for 10, 20, 15 years. Anyway, so what else is out there in the world that you've noticed, Peter? Are you keeping uh, Well, I'm, I, am, I am cheered by recent events in Italy. Mm-hmm. By the victory, I don't know much about Italian politics because, of course, to know anything about Italian politics, you have to study it 12 hours a day. It's so complicated. But here's what I know. This remarkable person, Georgia Maloney, has won. Uh, here's the quotation on YouTube. That she's giving a speech. And uh, why is the family an enemy? Why is the family so frightening? There's a simple answer to all these questions because it defines us. It defines our identity. She's just out there as against woke politics. I love that. Question one, isn't she a danger to democracy? I don't understand how someone who just won an election, a free election, why the first response of the columnists on the pages of the New York Times is that she's a danger to democracy. So I guess what that now has become... The, the meaning of danger to democracy is now crystallizing. It's a threat to the woke ideology. Any threat to the woke ideology is now a danger to democracy, I guess. Here's what I see. Here's the big issue, the overriding issue facing Europe. That Europe has a declining, has a below replacement birth rate, and over the next 50 years, its population is certain to shrink. Excuse me, nothing is certain when it comes to population projections, but all the projections show the European population shrinking. At the same time, Africa's population is projected to increase by one billion people. So the sort of existential question facing Europe is, how do we handle this? How do we get a grip on what we want to preserve? What kind of immigration we're going to permit? What are the... And Georgia Maloney, it may be in a ham-fisted manner, but Georgia Maloney is taking on the issue. And as far as I can tell, the Italian establishment, the European establishment, is simply pretending that it doesn't exist. Georgia Maloney is not a danger to democracy. She is democracy responding to the great issue on everybody's mind. That's the way democracy would be astounding if somebody like her didn't arise if the democracy were genuinely functioning. She's proof that democracy is still ticking in Europe. So I'm, a, I'm I actually find that cheering. Right. They're, they've come up she with She could this. screw it up, of course. She could turn yes. into a fascist. She's no fascist now. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Well, Italian politics being what it is, we'll see. But yes. you're right. Yes. I mean, democracy, democracy has been strangely transmuted into this this word that just means good um yes, and anything yes. that is against it is against our democracy because it's bad and our demo- and democracy good uh when of course it isn't democracy that anybody really wants in europe according to the eu and the rest of the brussels betters it's a certain concept a transnational idea that um and it's not boy big subject it's because they need to import people that they have to redefine europe as a sort of place that has values and those values are transnational and they're not rooted really in anything except you know clear thinking and smart you know how any rational reasonable person would be but those values came out of the individual cultures they came out of centuries of experience so in order to make this work though she's right and she says and again the quote i'm reading from the same thing you are they attack national identity 
And why is that? Well, the old saw is, of course, that's what got them into World War I and World War II. Nationalism is tribalism, it's xenophobia and the rest of it. But national identity is important. It's key. It's the glue that holds people together in monocultural societies like they have there. In the United States, different story because we are protean, we are the melting pot, we are come on, come all. We have a civic identity, but their identity is rooted in so many things, culture, folkways, history, religion, painting, names, all that stuff. She says they attacked national identity, they attacked religious identity. Well, yes and no. They attacked a particular one. They give a wave and a pass to another. They attacked gender identity. Okay, why is that exactly? Well, I can't quite figure out the why of that myself. Why is it? What is it in for them to embark on this process of dissolving what everybody knows to be a basic human historical binary? Mm-hmm. I get the idea that we expand our concepts to be more inclusive. I get that. I get that. Tolerance, fine. But what they're doing is using this theory in order to dissolve basic concepts that people have held by, for what purpose precisely? I don't know. Because I don't think that they're that Klaus Schmidt Davos clever to say this is the way we will dissolve society. I think they believe that these are good things and that good things will come of it. But nobody wants, nobody believes what they're saying. Everybody has to mouth what they're saying. And so this gender identity thing becomes just... Yeah, I agree. I agree. Right. That's, that's a, that, that really is a madness mm-hmm. in the sense that you can't even, even if you and I sat here until nightfall, we couldn't really come up with a sensible reason, with a plausible ideological reason. We can, we can understand why they might want to expand the state. We could understand mm-hmm. why right. they might want to raise taxes. We can understand all of that. But why you suddenly support the mutilation of girls mm-hmm. who are tomboys and say they want to become boys, why do you, why you champion that? It makes no sense to me. Because the all. wrong like, people oppose it. Because it is yeah. a sign of virtue to have these ideas, to not question them, to go along with this new vogue to show that you are the intellectual vanguard, that you are smart enough to understand. I mean, I've had conversations where people just say, well, we know so much more about the brain now. We know so much more about gender and the rest of this, that naturally science is telling us all of these things. And scientism being a religion to replace the one that just turned out, you know, Baroque churches and, you know, what else? Uh, scientism being good, if science is pointing us this way, if a study shows that uh, gender affirmation surgery is leads to 14% more happiness, that's a quantifiable point, the science says. So I, I, I think it's a lot of it is just performative, and none of it really right. affects right. their lives. And they say, why do you... What, what fasting? Why do you care if somebody does... Well, I don't, really, as long as they don't frighten the horses, fine. What I do care is that certain kinds of language become mandatory and speech becomes, right. you have to say these things. So I, so, so she says, national identity, religious identity, gender identity, family identity. She says, I can't define myself as an Italian Christian woman mother, and to which they will say, no, of course you can. And she, they'd be right. She can. She just did. But she said, no, I must be citizen X, gender X, parent one, parent two. I must be a number. Well, here we get to Patrick McGowan in The Prisoner pounding the table and making the teacups dance. I am not a number. I am a free man. And in that respect, better to push back now earlier before you are truly all these things uh, is, is good. So that speech, I think, was memory hold by YouTube, was it not? Or, or, or another speech that she made? I, I saw it on YouTube. I understand that it was taken down for a while because it had the content that violated the rules. Uh, against slanderous speech or hateful speech or something like that, you know, which is interesting. Defense of Western civilization at some point becomes de facto offensive because it contains ideas that, uh, that what? That otherize other cultures? That, that uh, argue against the, the notion of... Let me ask you, Peter, um, as you're getting your dog, do you think we're at the point yet where it is impossible... It seems, it seems difficult to discuss immigration today without immediately being accused of xenophobia and racism. Do you think we're past that point, that it, that it is impossible in Western society now to make cases against unrestricted 
immigration from wherever without being called a fascist? Uh, you certainly have to be willing to put up with being called a fascist. But again, one of the... Uh, I, I find this generally encouraging. Italians have just elected someone who promises to do something about it. Do what? We don't know. But at least she's recognized that there's a problem, that there's uncontrolled immigration taking place in Italy. In this country, to me, we'll see how it uh, unfolds or how it displays itself in the midterms, which are just a few weeks away now. But to me, one of the more encouraging developments of the last couple of years is that on the southern border of Texas, the Hispan which is heavily populated by Hispanics, they're moving to the Republican Party. And it was for years and years and years, you can see Mitt Romney agonizing whenever anybody talked to him, asked him a question about immigration, because for years it was taken as an article almost of faith. I guess it was faith. There wasn't real data to back it up, that if you insisted on controlling immigration as a Republican, you'd lose the Hispanic vote. And if you lost the Hispanic vote, you just couldn't win. So Republicans were doomed. And now it turns out that there are plenty of Hispanics who consider themselves Americans first and say perfectly comfortably, perfectly unselfconsciously, we cannot have uncontrolled borders. We just can't have it. And they say that some of the time in Spanish. We're talking about people whose first language at home is often Spanish. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm generally hopeful on that, on that point. Uh, the, the, the being cowed by the editorial pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times, that seems to be ending. Not just Donald Trump, but that seems to be ending in the Republican Party. And whatever is happening in Europe, which again, I repeat, I am no student of Italian politics, but apparently they're finding ways of talking about and then eventually, presumably, dealing with immigration that they're just going to do no matter what polite opinion might say. Going their own way without the blessings of Brussels. Why that calls the whole thing into question, doesn't it? And we can't it have does. that. And again, I just, I remember when, you know, the common market, when I was a small kid, and they were talking about the common market and the U and the rest of it. We regarded the, you know, the United States of Europe, why that sounds so Star Trek. Yes, of course, naturally so. But we thought it would be an, an agglomeration of individual nation states, each with their own characteristic. We did not think at the time, I remember, that there would be this supranational uh, bureaucratic nomenclature that would be you know like a lid of a kettle that would be placed on top of it that would seem to i still believe that the reason that brexit started was because the telegraph or the mail or somebody ran a story but that the eu was now going to regulate kettles tea kettles to make them boil slower because the energy requirements to make the kettle boil fast were unacceptable to the greens at which the point somebody in a small town, a small village somewhere said, that's it. They've come for my kettles. They've gone too far. And in every country, there's an, there's an aspect where they've, they've come for the kettles. Nobody thought they were going to come for the kettles. They just thought that they were going to get along and pass sensible regulations. We laugh at the idea of a European parliament. It's like, yep, what are they going to do? But it turns out that the mentality of that is as injurious as it can be. And if you deviate from it and you're, you're Poland, you're Hungary, or you're Italy, well, you're fascists. Don't think so. By the way, um, the the idea that anybody who is on the right in Italy is a fascist is wrong when you consider what Mussolini was all about—a proud socialist. Yes. But yet we, but yet we perpetuate this myth on and on and on again. You know, there's other myths too. There's lots of them. Thread count, thread count—that's a myth. You say, wait a minute, hold on. I, all my life, I've been told that thread count is actual, empirically true. No, no, no. It doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they're not the best threads possible. Boland Branch, yeah, you knew I was going there, didn't you? Boland Branch, they use the best 100% cotton organic threads on earth for a superior softness and a better night's sleep. Their sheets aren't just buttery, breathable, and impossibly soft to start. They get softer with every wash. Now, um, I actually washed the sheets twice over the course of this week. Uh, no, nothing happened. There wasn't any accidents. Well, the dog. Uh, which means that they're actually incrementally small twice as buttery and soft and breathable as they were a couple of weeks before. I will tell you in the day when they get so thin, I can see through them. I will tell you of the day when the sheets stop feeling great. Uh, but that day is not today. And I don't think it's going to come for years to come. 
Why? Because I've got the signature hemmed sheets. The signature hemmed sheets from Bolden Branch are bestsellers for a very good reason. You'll immediately feel the difference. And from there, the sheets just get softer and softer with every wash. Buttery to the touch, as I said, and super breathable. So they're perfect for every season. They're made with threads so luxurious. They are beloved by how many? By two, no, 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 by four, no, sweet spot, by three U.S. presidents love their Bolin Branches. Plus, Bolin Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all the orders. But you know what? You're not going to return them because you're going to love them. Uh, you know, you're not going to hear much about their generous return policy, however, uh, unless you can read the reviews and 10,000 of them. Nobody's saying I gave them back. No. You won't either. You wonder how you ever lived without them. 15% off, you say? That's what you want? You got it? 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code ricochet at bowlandbranch.com. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code ricochet. And we thank Bowland Branch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, Corey Shockey. He's a senior fellow and director of foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. She spent time with the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Department of Defense and the National Security Council and has taught at West Point, Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, National Defense University, and Stanford. Welcome, Corey. Thank you. It's so nice to be with you guys. Well, you just recently returned from a trip to the Ukraine. The Ukraine, as people call it. No, Ukraine, where you met with Zelensky. Fascinating. Let me tell you what I think is going on. No, I'm kidding. So you, you, you were there on the ground. You met with a man. Give us the lay of the land. So it was so incredibly impressive to see the toughness of Ukrainians and the unity that Russia's invasion created in the country. You know, President Zelensky had a 27% approval rating before the Russian invasion. He has a 97% approval rating now. And nor is it just you know, his excellence as a leader. The defense ministry has a 98% approval rating. The parliament has a 94% approval rating. Vladimir Putin has proved to be the father, not just of Ukrainian nationalism, but of Ukrainian affection for their own government. Hmm. Hey, Corey. All right, let me just go to the big one, shall I? Nukes. Vladimir Putin... Uh, we grant everything you said that and uh, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Grant everything you said. Uh, Putin has been foolish enough to call into being the very sense of Ukrainian nationalism and pride and energy that he was that he claimed to be worried about. Right. He's he's done what he didn't want to do. Uh, now he's cornered. He's turning 70. He is like all dictators or autocrats surrounded by some small shadowy unknown unless our intelligence is wonderful you'd know more about that than i would but presumably he's trapped in a in a bubble of some kind and um he's losing and this man has nuclear weapons and lots and lots of them uh, i was I, again you know far more about this than i do but apparently they have in their arsenal a lot of tactical nuclear weapons far more than we do we we concentrated on ballistic missiles they actually have tactical nuclear weapons um you the use of tactical nuclear weapons is part of soviet war doctrine they've at least thought about how to use them so should we not be concerned Yes, we absolutely should be concerned, but we shouldn't allow that concern to cause us to capitulate. You know, you're you're quite right. At the end of the Cold War, uh, NATO reduced its tactical nuclear weapons holdings by 90 percent, nine zero, down to only 200 weapons in the hopes that this, then the Soviet Union and subsequently Russia would follow suit. They reduced theirs by zero. Uh, so they have a stockpile of several thousand battlefield nuclear weapons. And I agree with you that the fact that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is failing, I can see a scenario in which Vladimir Putin considers it a perfectly rational um, 
military choice, namely as Russia's army is forced to retreat out of Ukraine. I could see Russia using a nuclear weapon on Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, as a way to try and show he had succeeded even as his army is forced to retreat. The thing that was most surprising to me in Kiev when I was there talking to people in the government and civil society in business, every single Ukrainian I talked to gave the exact same answer, which is Russia using a nuclear weapon would raise the cost of Ukraine's victory, but it wouldn't change the outcome. By the way... I talk about tactical nuclear weapons as if I had the slightest idea what I know, what I mean. Can you actually give us a very brief tutorial? The mental image we have of nuclear weapons are the huge firebombs, the Nagasaki, the H-bomb tests in the Pacific. I don't even really know how controlled or contained a so-called tactical weapon might be. Can I, I mean, would it be a, a kind of fireball visible from for hundreds of miles or or not? Uh, so uh, battlefield nuclear weapons tend to have lower yields, so they wouldn't they wouldn't be as, you know, hundreds of miles visible. But most of them are are not like there's no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon, in part because of the enormity of damage it would create. Um, but secondarily, because crossing the nuclear threshold for the first time since 1945 would, would be a momentous experience. You're quite right, though, that the there were in the 1950s a lot of really weird um, nuclear innovations. My favorite, uh, so there were two that were uh, in, in the American inventory, the Honest John and the Davy Crockett. Where I remember the these dimly. Go ahead. Yeah, the escape radius, namely the ability of the troops that use them to get out of the range of the weapon, the escape radius was smaller than the destructive radius of the weapon. So they were, in essence, kamikaze weapons. Brilliant. All right. James. Well, I'm just thinking, you said that when Putin is forced to retreat from Ukraine, he would nuke Kiev on the way out. But Good. he doesn't believe that the area that he would be forced to retreat from is Ukraine. He believes it is now Russia. Since the annexation of, of the of the eastern portion, that means that Ukraine fighting to regain its own territory is now, by their terms, fighting to take Russian territory. And their own constitution says, ha, we're not going to cede an inch, a hectare of this stuff. It's just simply not to be done. Doesn't, doesn't the annexation almost obligate them to do something that ratchets this way, way up? Because it's no longer loss of Ukraine. It's loss of Russian territory, which simply can't happen. Since annexation, it's now Great Patriotic War number two, nuclear boogaloo, isn't it? I don't think so. That's clearly what Vladimir Putin would like the West to worry about. But recall, he is losing a war against a middling military, right? He would lose a war against Poland. He'd lose a war against Germany. He'd lose a war against France, much less the United States. And so we are in the the deterrence game where Putin's trying to say, you better stop preventing me from losing. Otherwise, I'm going to do something suicidal for me and you. And we don't have to accept Putin on those terms, just as Ukraine is refusing to accept Putin on those terms. What I worry about is that the way that you framed the challenge is... Um, you know, leads to us consenting to Russian aggression. And we're the strong ones in this equation, not the weak ones in this equation. And so, you know, this takes us back to Thomas Schelling and the early theoreticians of nuclear deterrence. You know, deter he uses the metaphor of a game of chicken, two drivers driving towards each other, each 
um, you know, threatening that they won't uh, swerve. And for Tom Schelling, the right move is for one driver to visibly throw the steering wheel out the window so that they signal to the other one that they cannot change course. And that's what Vladimir Putin is trying to do. But we don't have to accept those terms, and it doesn't necessarily end in a car crash. Uh, Okay, so how... Sorry, I'm still playing devil's advocate here. I, I just I made a note of something Peggy Noonan wrote earlier this week. Peggy Noonan devoted has devoted, I think, two or three columns now to wait a moment, everybody, take this man seriously when he says he might use nuclear weapons. And there was one what was it today's for Monday, I guess it was. I made a note of this. I hope this is Peggy Noonan. I hope our leaders are groping towards something, some averting process, maybe along the lines of French President Emmanuel Macron's urging for a negotiated peace, close quote. Right, you're shaking your head. And as I understand it, Neil Ferguson, whom you, our, our friend Neil, was in Ukraine earlier this very month, and he came back and said much of what you're saying now. He said, if you ask Zelensky to settle for a negotiated peace, he would say, I can't. I'm a democratically elected president of this country. The people would not settle for a negotiated peace. So, on the and my question is, well, okay, fine. In that case, that's your problem. We don't need to be associated with your brave struggle for freedom. You run the risk of nukes. We're out. What's the American interest in backing the Ukrainians as they push and push and push for real victory? Our interest is, first of all, we should always stand on the side of people fighting for freedom. Second reason, American interest in it, is that if we allow Russia to chew off pieces of another state's sovereign territory, that will encourage aggressors everywhere. And... And so, including China, is, presumably China's the China's the real China, a much stronger power than Russia, right. but but not just Russia and China. And so you permit the corrosion of an international order that has made us safe and prosperous, and allow things to grow more dangerous. You allow the jungle to grow back at a time in which it's actually not particularly dangerous to us to stand alongside Ukraine. And I would, um, I, I'm an enormous fan of Peggy Noonan, but I wonder whether the president for whom she was such an able speechwriter would take the position she has taken. And I think we should all reflect on that because we have ways to affect Russia's calculation as well. And what what I think we should be doing, instead of encouraging Ukrainian capitulation, is encouraging Russian capitulation. That is telling the Russians, if you cross the nuclear threshold to try and cover your failure in Ukraine, we will uh, we will uh, track the movement of any troops or nuclear weapons coming into the area of operations. We will publicize that information. Namely, we will allow everybody to watch what you are doing in real time, just as we did in the run-up to the invasion. We will interdict the Russian use if we can, and we will enable the Ukrainians to interdict Russian use of nuclear weapons. And if you nonetheless proceed, if we fail to prevent the use of Russian nuclear weapons in Ukraine. We will join the war on Ukraine's side. We will hunt down everybody who was a party to the decision or a party to the carrying out of the decision. And we will make sure that they are either dead or facing justice for a war crime. It is in a third American interest, I would add, Peter, Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. that as a country with very strong conventional forces, 
it is in our interest to preserve the norm against nuclear weapons use. That taboo, because we can win our conventional wars. And if nuclear use becomes the norm for any country that is losing a conventional war, it will stimulate nuclear proliferation and it will make conventional wars uh, also nuclear wars. So it's not that, you know, the Ukrainians are dragging us into something that's not in our interests. The Ukrainians are giving us an opportunity to strengthen the international order that's manifestly in our interest, as well as the interest of even the authoritarian states that are threatening it right now. So there's 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 a lot in there though that you said because there's a lot of lines that are crossed. There's it's a difference between sure. assisting Ukrainians in interdicting and destroying the nuclear weapons and us doing it via NATO. That's a big red line, um, and that is what a lot of people are worried about because they're content with a proxy war. They're content with funding, giving them incredible munitions that allow them to do incredible things because you know arsenal of democracy and all that. But they don't want the U.S. or NATO to get directly involved. So what can what is our Who doesn't response? want the U.S. or NATO to get directly involved? Um, I think the majority of people who do not want a the United States troops on the ground in Ukraine. I think that that's that's a line that that a lot of people are not willing to cross. Okay. They're per- perfectly happy to, to 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 fund to fund them and help them, but actually getting our guys there and fighting Russian troops is not on the plate at the moment for a lot of people. Now, if you're saying that you, that you disagree, that you think the majority of American people will be behind that, I support the, the Ukrainians all down the line. I do not support putting U.S. troops on the ground to fight Russians at this moment. But then you don't support Ukrainians all down the line. You support Ukrainians partway down the line. No, 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 no. I think, no, no, I think they can do it. I think that they can, what they are doing now, they have done with our support, with our intelligence, with our materiel, with all of our assistance. They can do it. Putting Americans in Ukraine changes the, changes the whole flavor of it. It has to. You have to admit it changes the flavor of this incredibly. Okay. But, so what but you response- made a sweeping categorical statement, which is you support Ukraine all the way down the line, yes. and then you made a limited defense of them. Well, yes, in the, in the sense that I, I don't... It's totally I, fair. I'm just objecting to the generalized categorization. Right, but that's like me saying somebody... I mean, I know a lot of Ukrainians, and the, the most militant of them would not support using American intercontinental ballistic missiles to destroy Moscow at this point. So you could say to them, well, then you don't support Ukraine all the way down the line because you don't support an ICBM strike on Moscow. I mean, we can... I strongly disagree with you that I that my my support for them is qualified by the fact that I don't want America. I but that's for elsewhere. The question that I have for you is if they do do it and we don't interdict it in in time and the ukes don't, what is our response to Russian nuclear weapon use? So the first thing is the clearer and more specific we are about the consequences in advance, the less likely it is to happen. Um, which is why I think we should be extremely clear to the Russians that their breaking the nuclear taboo will create NATO's intervention on the side of the Ukrainians. Because I think what we want to do is prevent the Russians from doing it and widening the war to one that they will lose even more demonstrably on a on conventional battlefields, I think has potential deterrent force. Um, I do think that threatening not just Vladimir Putin, but everybody involved with the decision and everybody involved with carrying out the order also has the potential to prevent it from happening and is something we should do if they actually do make the decision and do carry out that. A third thing is I think it would be um, important for NATO countries, including the United States, that have specialized units that can help assist and detoxify and clean up nuclear um, nuclear places where nuclear weapons have been used, to send those to Ukraine and assist in Ukraine's recovery. I think that's consistent 
it sounds to me like that may be consistent with your red lines, which is no American troops fighting Russian troops, but also widening the war in ways Russia would not want it to happen. Hey, Corey, Peter here. Last question. Uh, I say last question. You take as much time as you'd like to answer, but last question from us, because I understand we promised to get you out in what is now two minutes from now. So the question is this. Could I... My general reading of the temper of this country, which is a horribly pompous thing to say, but this is just my feel for it, is that Americans are delighted that the Ukrainians have discovered a sense of na nationhood, that they're pushing Putin and the Russians back, but at the same time just very, very leery of putting American men and women in a position in which they might die for, hmm, what exactly? A country that's been a country for, I know we can talk about a millennium of history, but that gets complicated. Um, so, so here, can I just ask, let me sum up the question this way. Germany has, by itself, has an economy which is, what, a dozen times bigger than that of the Soviet Union? Germany has failed for three decades now to spend the 2% of GDP that it has always promised that it would on NATO. And we just look at this and say, now, wait a minute. This is a European problem. Let the Germans pull themselves together if Germany and France both behaved the way Britain has behaved, Ukraine would get the assistance that it needs. This really and truly is not our problem. We just can't. It's a European problem. Let them handle it. That's, that's psychologically at least plausible, I think, to lots of people. What's the answer? The answer is, do you really want to punish Ukraine for France and Germany's failures? Do you really want the independence of Ukraine, the freedom of the people of Ukraine to be something we don't care about because it's in Europe? Um, because that would make the United States a regional power, not a global power. And that would corrode, first of all, Germany and Ukraine, excuse me, Germany and France aren't going to move fast enough to save Ukraine because uh, the fight's on now. Second thing is 97% of the Green Party members in Germany favor arming Ukraine. 97% of the pacifist party in Germany favors sending weapons to Ukraine. Attitudes are changing in Germany. Allies are getting scared. And, and when countries get scared, they want to band together with their friends. So I'm not sure that uh, castigating France and Germany for the fact that they haven't been faster and more helpful uh, either helps Ukraine or assists the direction of travel that both France and Germany are going in, which is where we want them to be. And the third thing I would say is that what Jim Mattis and I learned during doing the public surveys for our books, uh, Warriors and Citizens, about American attitudes about the military, is that American public attitudes about the use of force are incredibly malleable. And what they depend on is the political leadership of the country doing two things. First, expending the political capital to explain to my mom why this matters for Americans. And second, demonstrating that they have a plan for achieving it that makes our interests and our resourcing aligned. So you're right that the freedom of Ukraine isn't the conquest of the continental United States. It matters less to us than that. But there are lots more ways we can be helping Ukraine to freedom than, you know, uh, the Normandy landing equivalent of our modern age. And we don't deter our adversaries by wringing our hands and being fearful that we, the strongest power in the international order, might have to pay some slight marginal cost. We deter our adversaries by squaring our shoulders 
owning our values and our interests and helping people to freedom instead of being fearful that that something might happen to us when we're the strongest power in the order and the one most able to defend ourselves and our interests. Here endeth my sermon, guys. <laughs> I think a lot of people are worried that the small marginal cost would be the city of Boston. Again, you are taking counsel of your fears instead of taking counsel of our strength. We are not the only ones who have something at risk here. In fact, we are the ones uh, most able to prevent, protect, deter any attacks on ourselves. I'm not afraid. I'm wary. And I, I Corey, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. We'll talk again, I hope, down the, down the line in six months and see where this is all shaken out. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Um, it would appear that I am a coward, and I am also insufficiently of a warmonger, which is a surprise for me. A couple of things here, and I know it's unfair to talk about what the guest has said after they had left, but one, when it comes to deterring to, uh, aggression uh, around the world, uh, to, and Peter mentioned, you know, if we support this, then it gives China pause. I think that's true, but it's also the, the only situation in which it applies. Nobody's particularly cared about uh, aggression in Africa. Nobody's really worried about aggression in South America. No, we're concerned about Europe for a variety of reasons. We're concerned about Russian revanchism, about if they get this, then they're going to go back for the Baltics. They're going to go back for the rest of their neighbors and rebuild what they wanted, what they what they so clearly mourn the loss of. That's what we're worried about because we're more worried about Europe than we are these other places. Just how it is. Uh, but two, I think the idea somehow that we get involved, that 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 NATO American tanks start rolling their way, and this does not end very, very bad. I I don't understand this sort of I, cavalier isn't the word I'm looking for. Indifferent isn't the word I'm looking for. Remote isn't the word I'm looking for. But there's something about this that doesn't that says this can't end in something horribly wrong. When I said that the marginal cost might be Boston, that that's the reaction to us doing. That's the reaction to us getting involved. A nuclear exchange, and that's waved away as fear. I don't think it's fear. I think it's prudence am i wrong peter or did i did i completely you're not wrong you're 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 not wrong there is this is vexing i mean on the on the one hand if you permit if you permit well here are two things that seem to me true and this is why nuclear nuclear theory let alone when we're facing the reality of it why nuclear theory is so complicated and difficult on the one hand true if you permit the possession by the other side of nuclear weapons to paralyze you, mm -hmm. you may as well just give up right now, item one. Item two, if you ignore the possession by the other side of weapons that could take out Boston, or more likely in the short term, some big city in the Donbass or even Kiev, then you're, you're just a fool and maneuvering between those two is not easy no when she said that she, one thing that she and mattis had learned was that the american attitudes toward military engagement were malleable i got a little shiver up my spine you know because uh okay that's true but it does make it sound as though we're going to pull all the instruments of propaganda in order to get people to be on board with this but it's difficult now people are on but the general attitude in this country i think is to help ukraine and the general attitude is as such because what people initially saw was a war in what they believed to be sort of the they could they could identify with all of these moms and their kids and their pink backpacks going to the train to run to escape Russians. They got that. They got the human tragedy element. And the more they schooled up on it and learned about it, the more that they thought the Russians were big surprise being aggressive and bullies and meanies. And so presented with that horrible human tragedy at the beginning. If the Russians had taken Kiev in three days, we wouldn't be talking about this. But they didn't. And so they're allowed to be, to flower, to grow this American attitude that we ought to help them in their struggle. And there, we've been unstinting in right. that. Nobody's been, I mean, yes, people have been saying, oh my God, they just gave another $1.6 another $10 billion, and and yet, uh, you know, we're not helping our own people. I get that whole argument. But we're all, we're committed, we're in, we're giving them the good stuff, and it's working. So now 
now to turn around to people and to somehow make malleable their attitudes to get them to believe that the next necessary step is American troops after what we've been through in the last 10, 15 years, I think is delusional. What is the end stage exactly of this, of American engagement with Russian forces? Is it, are we going to do another nation building thing? Because we've got a nation there that's ready, practically a cold bar of Turkish taffy. You could hit with a hammer and would break into a variety of constituent uh, republics, 12 time zones worse. Are we, are, are we going to nation build Russia right now exactly? No, we're not. No, there's no appetite whatsoever for war with Russia. There is a great delight at seeing Russian difficulty and considering perhaps that Putin may lose because American animus right now is concentrated on Putin as though he is somehow the font of Russian culture instead of being an expression of what has been created by him and by the culture in the last 10, 20 years. There's no way, I think, the American public is malleable at this point to say, yeah, send our boys over. And it, it stuns me that she was things. And it infuriates me that the idea that I'm not willing to commit American troops for this somehow makes me less committed to the to, to the notion of Ukrainian independence. Hey, they're doing a good job. Help them out. Let them do it. But no. <laughs> oh, we're not sending our troops. My own model here is the story. End of end of my sermon. No. Well, so my my the. The model in my mind is the Reagan doctrine. What was the Reagan doctrine? The Reagan doctrine was, we're right behind you. Contras, you want weapons, you want materiel, have at it. Mujahideen in Afghanistan, you want Stinger rockets? Fine. We will supply, we will support, we will provide materiel, intelligence. We're not going to do your fighting for you. And... Um, that strikes me as a, as a as the right place to draw the line. So on the yeah, here's the other thing. I am uh, now we're ramping up. Here here's a here's a related problem. Someone whom I admire a great deal, particularly on Twitter, is Elbridge Colby, who's making the point that we need to take China's threats against Taiwan very seriously. Okay, that is true. Taiwan also needs to take China's threats against Taiwan seriously. Here are the statistics. Here's the percentage of its GDP that Taiwan devotes to defense, 2.1%. We're at almost four. Here's Israel, 5.6%. Israel's a serious country. They're serious about defending their own nation. Taiwan still isn't. This is a serious problem for us. Well, I think Taiwan despite everything it said knows that or thinks that will come to their their, their assistance well that's I, a problem I mean, otherwise, if, if, right or just that I, I don't know but you know and personally it's not high on my list of things to worry about except for the economic impact of having a lot of semiconductor industries fall into the hands of china but but i mean china is the big geopolitical problem out there waiting to happen and china's having its own difficulties it's not like they are this absolutely rock solid colossus that is going to be bestriding the world i mean she gets on the phone and with biden and tell well, it was i think it was with biden and tells him that uh, autocracy is the future of the world not democracies well, okay, it's going to see how that's going to play out. I don't think very well, because I, the autocracies that we have on display right now, from Maduro to Xi to Putin, are not places that anybody wants to live. There's no, not a great clamoring for people to get into their countries, whereas we still remain the beacon of that for the world. For self rational self-interest of the people who are streaming here, yes, but that's because this is still a more dynamic, free, open society, despite the fact that we moan and bitch and cry about all the things that are wrong here we are still that shining city on the hill as reagan said and i'm not going to you know it may be a cliche by now it may be over romantic and pathetic and nationalistic and jingoistic but it's still true where else do you want to be so but you know th th that that said I'm, st I'm i'm still coming back to what she was saying about this idea that it is up to us to do everything that everybody else isn't i mean 
yes, the, it, the fact that they haven't spent this money in defense of their own countries is indicative of them. And you know, she said, do we want Ukraine to pay for the failures of France and Germany? No. But do we want France and Germany to feel some of the consequences for their unwillingness to shoulder the burdens that they had? Peter? I mean, yeah, I don't. Listen, I'm thinking this through. I don't have argue, I don't have ready arguments. I'm still thinking all of this stuff through. I suppose, well, I do, I, and I do. And, and here, here's what it is: they have, for the longest time, taken a free ride from us because Correct. they know that they can, because we offer Correct. to do so. And the French, you know, of course, they're not going to be part of this because they're France. They can defend themselves, but they know they know that they're part of this as well. We know also that we are not going to let them go down again and that we would come back and save their bacon again and that the result of that down the line one generation or two would be indifference and an outright animus from the people that we saved again and again and frankly in the final analysis it doesn't matter i don't care if they don't like us what matters is that we have this 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 place called europe 2,000 years of history, civilization from which we came, a civilization that created science and ideas and that have transformed the world and are worth preserving. And I'm not going to be one of those guys who just waves off Europe because they're Davos and EU influenced and the rest of it, and they want everybody to live in the pod and eat the bugs and all the rest of it. No, it's still worth saving. Where else in the world exactly do you want to find a place that is produced and, ex- and that is Europe? So I'm deeply committed to the Western world. That includes Canada, includes Australia, includes all of this, the Anglosphere that has created a civilization that is that is worth preserving. So yes, if they don't spend the money and they get in trouble again, we are going to save their bacon because for some reason we've signed up or been anointed, celestially or otherwise, the role of this. And I accept that. I just don't accept sending U.S. troops into Ukraine to start a shooting war where Putin ends up nuking Boston or New York because that is not on the cards. So I know I'm all over the road here, but fair. I, I so are we I, all I, right? By the <laughs> I mean, way, the other point, the other point. Even yeah. if you agree, and and Corey is highly intelligent, she makes a very good argument. Even if you agree that we should do, and she listed what three steps that we should take right now. Do you trust this administration and this commander in chief to act? with prudence and energy in the executive, to use Hamilton's phrase, do we trust this administration to get it right? Well, that's the problem. I don't know who this administration is. Yes. If you're telling me that they present a series of options to Joe Biden and they have to give him a B-12 shot in the buttocks to wake him up and figure out what's going on, the guy who can't find his way off a stage and spends his time at memorial you know, events calling out the dead person's name is not somebody who I think is really up to speed on the particular options available to him, should they nuke. So, does it fall to Kamala Harris? Well, I worry about that because she doesn't know if we're in North Korea or South Korea. So, who then does it fall to? Klain? Does it fall some in the Pentagon. Who? Who's calling the shot? Here we are, oddly enough, rationally, calmly, and somehow disinterestedly almost discussing the possibility of nuclear exchanges with the Soviet <laughs> sorry, with Russia. And we don't know who the leader is. We don't know who's making the switch, who's got the button, who's got the football. I that is the most absurd part about this that I never could have predicted was, down the line. Wasn't it the which presidential campaign was it when the 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 I think it was the Democratic candidate said, "Who are you? Who who are we? Who are you going to call at three in the morning? Right, three o'clock in the three morning. o'clock in the morning." And mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say, but my question about the current administration is, who are you going to call at three in the afternoon? Three in the it's afternoon. Nap time. Right. <laughs> Jay Nordlinger had a little piece there uh, on Twitter the other day where he was talking about that Reagan actually did not nap. He didn't, but he had this reputation. Now you would know. Did he? He nap? did. Yes, he did. Okay, he took then, a little rest Jay's in wrong. the afternoon. Then Jay's afternoon. wrong. We'll leave that. But even if so, Jay was saying that that Reagan, even though people were saying that this was a sign of his advanced age and the rest of it, he wasn't up for the job, and that Reagan walked, just gathered it up and t- made it part of his personality. You know, said yeah. when, when talking about a problem, he said he'd spent many a sleepless afternoon thinking about it. You know? <laughs> yes, that's a wonderful. And, and and Jay was saying that that Biden should endorse his senioritis and perhaps make reference to that, which is completely beyond. A Biden's ability. Yes, it is. But nobody would be reassured if he started making jokes about his diminished mental capability because it's already factored and baked into what people believe. So here we are. We don't know who's in charge. We're happy with what we're doing in Ukraine generally because they seem to be winning and we like and the Americans love a winner, as Patton would say, or George C. Scott. 
but we don't know exactly who's behind it. We don't even know what happened to Rob Long. <laughs> I shouldn't say that in case uh, we can't back. run a podcast. Oh, How can we expect Lordy. to run a war? Hey, I got to tell you this, though, here, if you've enjoyed this podcast or you hate it and you want to tell everybody about it, it'd be great to sit down in person with the, you know somebody in the podcast and say, you are so wrong. It's possible. Ricochet does not exist as this floating incorporeal cyberspace thing. No, we have meetups. Meetups, that's where it's at. So where exactly is it at, you ask? Where? Well, go to ricochet.com, join up, and you'll know. But I'm happy to give you some hints. Since Rob isn't here, I will give them to you crisply and briskly. We mentioned over the last few weeks, events will be going on in Williamsburg, Virginia, and Huntsville, Alabama in October. And we got one set for New Orleans next, I'm sorry, New Orleans, as we say here up in Minnesota, next year during French Quarter Fest. Oh, that'll be fun. Bring your beads. Most recently, uh, an event in Pittsburgh has been added. Uh, exact dates are always being worked out, but it'll be happening sometime late November, early December. And you might be thinking, oh, well, that sounds like a lot of fun, but I'm not going to go to there. I like to stay home. Great. I understand that. I'm a homebody myself. And it's a big country. You can't get other places fast or cheaply sometimes. But if our meetup locations are out of reach for you, you are not doomed to a lonely existence. No, no, no. What you can do is you can join Ricochet and then give us a place in time, and Ricochet and all of its glory will come to you. I've been to these things. They're a lot of fun. I think the last one I got COVID. I was out in New York. It was worth it. The people that I met, the conversations that I had, and the great thing about it is we did not sit around and rehash the things that we talk about on Ricochet. It was not politics. Everybody opened up in a direction that just hadn't come up on Ricochet before. And the fascinating things you learn about people, the movies they like, the movies they make, the music they make. I, it was great. It was. I went to New York on my own dime for one of these. You should too. Or start your own. In any case, for details, go to ricochet.com slash events. Or there's also a module on the sidebar. You can eyeball for that and figure out where to go next. Uh, Peter, before we go, there was a kerfluffle, brouhaha, um, on Twitter. Uh, apparently Imagine that. somebody I know, I know somebody was talking about the time on the podcast when rob long was quoting to you lyrics by lizzo the rapper singer and you were plussed or nonplussed i can't remember which and i couldn't remember this happening rob couldn't remember this happening you couldn't remember this happening. It's the Mandela effect, isn't it? Somebody has fabricated in their mind something that Rob did with exquisite detail, and yet they forgot the time that you were dining with David Bowie and didn't know who he was. Yes, well, I can tell you, I don't remember the Lizzo incident. It is certainly plausible if Rob did quote lyrics to me by somebody called Lizzo when this was scrolling on Twitter last night, I turned to my wife and said, who's Lizzo? I certainly would not have known who Lizzo was. I've looked it up since. But it is true. I will repeat the story. I'm starting to feel slightly ashamed of it because so many people tell me I should be ashamed of myself. I spent two months in Switzerland with Bill Buckley in the winter of 19... Well, it turned January, so 1980, 87-88 two months in Gestad, Switzerland, and we worked all day. Well, we skied for a couple of hours in the afternoon, and then we would go out to big fancy dinners. It was Bill's life, not mine, but Bill was kind enough to tell everybody that he wanted me, his research assistant, invited. And at one of these dinners, I think there may have been eight people at, around, at a round table, and I was seated next to someone who was seemed per perhaps 10 years older than I was, who spoke with an English accent. He was dressed in a suit, and we chatted amiably away. And then when, on the way back to where we were living, Bill said, oh, by the way, Peter, did you know that man? I'm told that man is famous. His name is, is uh, Mr. Bowie, Mr. Bowie, Mr. Bowie. And I said, oh, I had no, I had some, I still don't know exactly who David Bowie was. And I've looked him up. I've tried to listen to his music. Listen, I'm just now coming around to the Beatles. That's just the way it, so I did, it's true, it happened. I sat next uh -huh, to David Bowie you. at dinner, chatted away about politics, a little bit of politics, mostly about the skiing. I couldn't quite figure out what his conversational metier was, and I did not have any idea who he was. The beauty of that is, is that eventually, I'm not sure if it was quickly or, or later, 
Bowie realized you 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 really didn't know. Yes, who he was. yes, yes. And that must have freed him up in a way that he seldom experienced. Because for the first time in his life, he was just a guy. For the first time in forty years, he's just a guy talking to, to another <laughs> fellow. He's not David. Bowie, you gave him the opportunity to be himself as opposed to this. And I do remember it's coming back. I do remember there was a woman seated across the table from us who kept eyeing our conversation as if she was somehow on on a five five alarm alert, almost as though he was an alcoholic and she was worried he was going to start drinking again. She just kept returning to eye our breaking from her conversation to look across the table. And I think it was either, her, was it his wife, his agent, his public, I can't remember, well, how would I know? I didn't know who he was. But I do think now that she kept looking across in total astonishment that I wasn't asking for an autograph or discussing nothing. I didn't know who he was. Who is this guy who is not, who, maybe he doesn't even, he doesn't even know who is this thin white mook who's sitting there not talking to Exactly. This podcast was brought to you by Bowl and Branch. Support them for supporting us and join Ricochet today. Why don't you? And give us that five-star review. And also um, send all the available David Bowie vinyl pressings to Peter Robinson, <laughs> uh, P.O. Box 173, New York, New York. And so he can uh, bring himself up to speed on the glories that Mr. Uh, that were Mr. Bowie's career. I'm kind of indifferent on the guy. I love some of his stuff. I admire his public work and the rest of it. Um, his public work? Uh, what public work it, did he do? Uh, I'm sorry. His his by that I think I mean the way in which he crafted his persona over the years, uh, quite elegantly okay. and smart. He was a very smart man. He yeah. knew what he was doing, yeah. and he seems to have been a decent fellow as well. Yeah. So for all that, but and some of the music I like, and some I don't. Same with these podcasts. Some you're gonna like, some you're gonna hate. Hope you like this one. I'm James Lilacs for Ricochet. We'll see you at Ricochet 4.0 next week. Next week, James. James.
Join the conversation. Wake up!